Hey, everybody. It's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. Uh, we've got a special one. We missed a week. We apologize. The campaign news has just been too heavy, and I have a day job, okay? Um, speaking of my day job, I have had a hell of a week. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but just check out Twitter uh, and, and check out some of the right-wing websites like Breitbart. One of my emails to John Podesta popped loose as a result of this uh, WikiLeaks hacks, and people did not apparently appreciate my sense of humor or my reporting techniques. Um, just, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail. I will at some later date when, when the fever breaks a little bit. But it was a fascinating, if nauseating, experience to be in the middle of a firestorm when people are willfully misinterpreting what you're saying, you're getting spun, people are reaching out to you, uh, friends of yours, people who you assumed were friends of yours are kind of reaching out to you to see if they can grab a quote from you. Just a totally weird, brand new situation for me, and I'm going to write about it someday. Um, anyway, we are about to have our third and thankfully final debate. We've got 21 days left to this thing, and it can't go fast enough for me, and I'm sure America agrees. I have some faith that this will finally have an element of substance in it. The first debate... Uh, was clearly these two uh, candidates filling each other out. The second debate was the most disgusting political event I have ever attended. Uh, the thing that Donald Trump did with bringing the women into the into the debate hall was execrable. It was. It will be viewed in history as being a really uh, a really demeaning uh, move. And I think his performance in general uh, dragged the entire process down. You really had to be sitting in that filing center at Washington University in St. Louis. Usually Trump gets four or five big belly laughs from the reporters who were gathered there. And it, it was a really funereal kind of environment. And I think it, reflect, it reflects where the country is and, frankly, where his polling is right now. In any event, we have a really good guest, somebody I've wanted for a while uh, to have on the, on the show. In fact, I was so eager to have him. Bridget and I schlepped all the way to Topeka, Kansas, to the Kansas Secretary of State's office. And we really like Topeka. Topeka's a cool, uh, cool capital town. I really like the Kansas State Capitol. Nice, clean-looking capital. None of this California stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, Chris Kobach is kind of the very young godfather of modern conservative immigration policy. He was the guy, for good or ill, who gave Mitt Romney the idea of self-deportation. And he is the guy who really gave... Trump, uh, some sense of uh, se some semblance of reasonability in terms of his wall proposal. Kobach believes that you can actually tax uh, repatriated money going from Mexico, from Mexicans living here uh, back into Mexico. He thinks that there is a way to actually get the Mexicans to pay for the wall. A lot of people disagree with him. In any event, he is a guy who's really controversial, particularly on the issue of voting rights. He's a real firebrand, but the cool part about him in a year when our firebrands tend to be setting the stage on fire is a really civil guy, explains himself. I didn't agree with a lot of his statistical uh, foundations, as a lot of people uh, don't, um, but just a very articulate advocate for his position. You know precisely where he stands, and you really do get the feeling when you're sitting in that office with him in Topeka, it really looks like a law office, that you are in the heart uh, the real wellspring of this entire movement that has spread out over the land in terms of these immigration laws in Arizona and Alabama, and finally sort of nesting in the campaign of, of Donald Trump. He's a perfect guy, I think, to have uh, before a debate which is supposed to uh, focus on immigration and immigration reform. In any event, we'll do our usual bit of business. Please follow us on iTunes and rate us, and we are available in a whole bevy i believe that is the word of new platforms uh, including spotify you can pretty much get us anywhere now because of our new partnerships uh, so without any further ado from live from not really quite live but live from topeka kansas chris kobach windy day here in topeka Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> Kansas, uh, the Kansa is an Indian tribe, a Native American tribe, first the people of the South Wind, and today you are experiencing our South Wind. It is quite the South Wind. Um, yeah. I have to say, I've never been, I've been through Kansas a lot, but I've never been to Topeka. 
Uh, and uh, state capital is really cool. Yeah, it is a it's it's a beautiful state capital. I grew up in Topeka actually, and this part of Kansas doesn't look like the part of Kansas people imagine. You know, from Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, it's it's not flat. It's very hilly. Lots of trees, very green. It's a, it's a great place. And Topeka, I mean, it's almost close enough. When you were growing up, I want to ask you a little bit about that, but when you were growing up, Topeka's not that far from Kansas City. No, Topeka's a, you know, less than an hour drive from Kansas City. In fact, uh, for many years, I've been commuting between living in Kansas City and working here in Topeka. Um, it, d- does Kansas City kind of have a pull towards it? I mean, is there sort of a relationship between the two places? Does it kind of... It's not suburb. It's not a suburb of KC, but it's no, no. I mean, they're they've always been distinct places. But KC's a you know a metro area of about two million. So you've got the professional sports teams. You've got you know the amenities in a big city. And Topeka's uh, you know it's it's always had its own identity. And but it, it's far enough away. It's not really a bedroom community. Um, but you know Topeka's the political capital of the state and the Johnson County area, which is the Kansas side of the KC metro, has always been the economic center of the state, kind of like Washington and New York are to the country. Uh, so in terms of, just tell me a little bit about your background. Obviously, you uh, you were born here, you moved away for a while. Just give, tell me what your folks did and how, you, how they yeah, came to uh, move uh, here. Well, I wasn't born here. I was born in Wisconsin, and my folks moved here when I was uh, a young kid, uh, I think seven years old. And uh, my dad was a car dealer, um, and uh, my mom had, by the time we moved here, she had uh, retired from her job and was uh, working as a homemaker and grew up here, went out east for college, went to Harvard for college and uh, Yale for law school. And uh, then in between went to England to do a, a doctorate degree uh, on a Marshall scholarship. Now, in terms of uh, obviously you are a very, for those of you who can't see the office, uh, I am sitting in the secretary of state's office and why would anyone be able to see it except me, right? <laughs> um, this is a very lawyerly, you just finished up a long deposition. Yeah. This is a lawyer's office. I mean, this is really looks almost like a legal office. Yeah. And so I, I was a law professor for 15 years before I became secretary of state and uh, have continued to, on the side, represent uh, various clients as, as an attorney. In Kansas, uh, you can be a statewide office holder and, and also have other employment. And so I've continued to do some work in the immigration field, representing ICE agents, representing cities on the issue of immigration, um, just being involved in, in various cases, uh, typically on issues of federal preemption and immigration law. Um, so where'd you get the bug? Your dad was a car dealer. When did you first start to really get into the law? Um, probably in high school. I was a high school debater, debate geek, and I think that's when a lot of lawyers sometimes get the bug. I think I had a feeling that was probably <laughs> the case. Um, was there anything you read? Was there anything that was influential on you when you were a kid that kind of pushed you in this direction? Um Maybe not so when I was a kid, but uh, when I got into law school, I started uh, looking a lot at immigration, reading some uh, Supreme Court opinions on the subject, and uh, started to realize that it's one of those issues that affects everything else. And I think that's why immigration questions and immigration issues in presidential election cycles, they're always in the top. They might not be in the top two, but they're usually in the top five or, you know, the top, certainly the top 10, because you know, your immigration policy affects your national security. Your immigration policy will affect your taxes. It will affect the welfare systems of the country. It will affect um, crime statistics in the country. It will affect culture broadly defined. And so it's one of those issues that touches everything else. And it's also an issue that people, a lot of people have an opinion on. So it's a fascinating issue to work in as a lawyer and it's a fascinating issue to work in as someone who's in the political field was it something that your pet was it a kitchen table issue for you you guys when you were a kid no no not growing up we uh, did, just kind of developed an interest in it in law school what give me a sense of what kind of precipitated it just sort of well actually um i remember uh in the 90s california had uh proposition was it 187 i can't remember the number so, of it. Yeah. um and that was a big deal that really brought the question of um, alien. Was that the Pete Wilson one? Yes, that was yeah. the Wilson one. Right. Um, the alien usage of welfare programs and other questions associated with illegal immigration. And that was a really fascinating debate. And I think that's when I really started uh, digging into the issue because it was such a you know prominent issue nationally. Now, when you went, uh, you're obviously uh, here in Kansas. Um, one doesn't no Kansas City. Kansas City has had a chair of uh, immigrants uh, over the years, and Kansas has as well. Yeah. Um, 
I remember hearing stories about like Arlen Specter's parents and, you know, sort yeah. of coming here. Um, but, but when you headed east to go to school, well, first of all, you headed to two institutions, Harvard and Yale Law, which are hardly bastions of, of sort of conservative, yeah. right? What did you, uh, as a conservative, as kind of a Midwestern conservative, what was your experience at Harvard like initially? Um, you know, it was very interesting because if you, uh, if you go into an institution like that, that like, like most colleges have a pretty strong liberal bias, uh, and you're not certain of your views, you can just be carried along by the current. But if you, you know, are fixed in your political views and have already figured things out in your mind, um, then you go into a place like that and you kind of feel like you're under siege because you're constantly defending yourself. Right. And, and that's the way it was for me at Harvard. And, you know, I came out of it uh, even more conservative than I went in because I could see the flaws in some of the arguments people were making. Uh, and there's sort of views. a cultural presumption. Did you feel, and I've spoken with other uh, sort of Ivy League conservatives, did you feel that there was a presumption? How do I put this in a more delicate way? But like there's a presumption that you were stupid because you were making these arguments that were sort of counter. Well, I wouldn't put it that strongly, but I would say that there is a conceit on the left that because professors are overwhelmingly liberal, then evidently that's the the uh, intellectually correct position. Right. But inevitably, as a debater, but and I, I debated at Harvard as well, um, when you, in most issues, when you get down to it, many of the liberal positions when you when you strip away like the the layers of an on, of an onion the the superficial reasons they give at the core it's just an emotional basis whereas in many of the conservative positions on the same issues are much more based in facts and in data and so you know it, it's oftentimes very easy to debate uh, a, an issue with someone who comes at it from a very liberal perspective because they may not have the evidence that they need to marshal a defense of their position now a couple of interesting people uh, I heard a rumor went to Yale Law. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, yes. <laughs> but also Clarence Thomas. And yes. Clarence Thomas yes. had a more, I mean, it's a really fascinating culture just in terms, but you went, mm -hmm. you obviously went years and years later. Yeah. Well, um, it's funny when I went, um, I arrived at Yale Law in the fall of 92. And so uh, there was a Bill and Hillary love fest virtually going on. You know, the, the law school <laughs> was celebrating the Clintons and, uh, it, you know, because we were coming up to the presidential election. And so, right. uh, and, and I recall Hillary uh, giving a speech on the um, New Haven common and so there was this immense celebration of the clintons uh going on during the fall of my first year at law school so, what was this i hadn't what was the speech um you were there it was just a, yeah i actually went, went to it there was just a uh, i think it was just a standard um political speech uh you know i don't think there's anything special about it but she she gave a speech and and i went because she was on the yale law, was it the yale law review or the alternative law review and she had that amazing i don't know if you know this I did a story on this years ago. She had this amazing law review article that talked about Democrats invading a small population state to tilt it oh, in really? the electoral college. I, I have never read that. It was kind That's of the Vermont plan. And it was like a big, no, she didn't write it. She, she edited it. Oh, I see. But okay. that was like a big kerfuffle back in 92. Interesting. But she also worked in the Yale Child Development Center, if I recall, and worked on the Beyond the Best Interests of chi Children. So she always had that kind of intersection with... Uh, with those two things. So were you always, even at Yale, interested in the intersection between immigration and, and these legal and constitutional issues? Yeah, well, that's where I became interested in it, it was at Yale. Um, I, well, I, I should back up. As a doctoral student in England, um, I did uh, my dissertation on the Swiss political system. And so I, I was certainly studying it in other contexts. I was looking at referendums in Switzerland, referendums in, uh, in California. And so there were a number of referenda on immigration related questions that I'd been studying too. So I, my interest was kindled before I got to Yale law school, but at, at law school, I, I really got into it. Well, I'm sure people have asked you this question before, but again, so I almost get to the beyond the intellectual and get to more of the visceral on this. Why do you think that this particular issue was as meaningful? You talk about sort of the intersection between it and everything else, but did you ever have an experience either as a kid or as a student uh, that really crystallized for you uh, the need to, uh, to approach this as sort of the cause of your life? You know, um, you'll often hear politicians uh, in, in sappy phrases say, Oh, nine 11 changed the way I look at yeah. the world. Uh, for me, I, it actually really did because I just arrived at the Justice Department as a uh, a White House fellow, and I was going to be counsel would later become counsel to John Ashcroft, and I had been given the immigration portfolio on the Attorney General's personal staff, and so uh, 
I saw things uh, right after 9-11 that many Americans didn't learn about until later, or, and many may still not know. Uh, for example, uh, of the 19 hijackers, uh, all 19 came in legally to the United States on various visas. Five of the 19 became unlawfully present. They became illegal aliens. They overstayed their visas. Uh, mostly overstays. One was a case of a person um, not following the conditions of his visa. Right. And of those five, four were arrested for traffic violations. Wow. Of those four, three were pilots. So three of the four pilots were arrested by the police while, for, for stopped by the police while they were illegally in the country. Had the police officers had the information at their fingertips that this person is illegally in the country, they would have had authority to question and detain him on behalf of, of ICE, or right. at that time the INS. And that epiphany shaped a lot of what I would do for years to come, including the Arizona uh, SB 1070 law, which opens up the channel of communication, allows the police officer to make a call to the 24-7 hotline that ICE has to find out if this person's an illegal alien. Because if a law like that had been in effect when those hijackers were uh, stopped for speeding, then they could have been detained and maybe we could have saved thousands of lives because you take a pilot out of the equation, well, then one of the planes doesn't right. get hijacked. So that was a real turning point for me when I was right after 9-11. I saw how our immigration system had been um, exploited by the terrorists and how uh, loopholes like that or failures of the system had allowed the hij hijacking to continue when we could have stopped it. So yeah, 9-11... And my specific research and involvement after 9-11 um, at the Justice Department definitely shaped uh, my years to come. And then, uh, and then you have become, over the years, to sort of fast forward, um, you've sort of, I would say, a very young ideological godfather of this particular movement. How would you even describe uh, the sort of, if you were to kind of describe the movement that you were spearheading in terms of changing immigration policy, is there a word for it? Um, I would say it's the rule of law movement or the enforcement side of the immigration debate. I mean, to, to use shorthand terms, I think you have the open border side and then you have the enforcement side. And I realize that not everybody in the open border side wants strictly open borders, but many do. And on, on our side of the debate, you generally see uh, a concern that our laws are not being effectively enforced, or in some cases, the executive branch doesn't even want to enforce the law. So yeah, I, I'd call it the pro-enforcement side of the debate. Now, do you think the Obama administration, because one of the controversial stories I covered when I covered the White House, uh, was the crackdown that the, I mean, the uh, uh, Hispanic groups, uh, La Raza and other groups were complaining really bitterly about what they viewed as an enforcement crackdown. And then there was the issue of sort of the Central American, the Central American miners coming up. Do you think, and, and the statistics showed, I believe in sort of the 2011, correct me if I'm wrong on the, on the numbers here, but like in the 2011, 2012 timeframe, it sort of peaked and set records in terms of deportations. Do you think given those statistics that you can sort of reasonably say that the Obama folks didn't do enforcement. Um, so yeah, let me go back. Uh, no, yeah. yes, I think you can say they didn't do enforcement. And the reason is um, that the assumption you're making based on reporting that's out there right. was subsequently proven incorrect. So you're right. The Obama administration did report deportation numbers in, I believe, 2012 and maybe 11 that were record numbers. They right. were in the 400,000 range. Right. However, what we subsequently learned, and this was actually the subject of some expert testimony in the case of Crane versus Napolitano, where I was lead counsel for 10 ICE agents, we learned that the Obama administration had been cooking the books. And the way they did it was this. They, there's a program called ATEP, A-T-E-P, and I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's where you, if an alien is encountered crossing the border in city A, instead of, instead of just sending him on a voluntary return right back across the border where you caught him, you put him on a bus or you put him on a plane and you take him 200 miles down the border and then you send him back. Uh, in, in this case, we'd be talking about Mexico. And the idea is to make it harder for the alien to connect back up with the coyotes and come back in the next day or the next week. You, you kind of make it harder for him right. to orient himself and come right back. And so what the Obama administration was doing was counting those individuals as interior deportations when in fact the person was never in the interior of the country unless he was under the custody of the Border Patrol or ICE. And by doing that, they they changed the way that we were counting and they counted, they artificially inflated the number of 
quote-unquote deportations or, or removals uh, by about 70 or 80,000. So you take those out of the equation, and it, it was all-time lows, or at least not all-time lows, but lows given the past few decades of immigration enforcement. Of course, at the time, we didn't know that that's how they were cooking the books and inflating the numbers. So in retrospect, no, the Obama administration has not been uh, deporting uh, large numbers or record numbers uh, of aliens. And, you know, I, I think the when La Raza was complaining about those numbers, they didn't realize that the books were being cooked uh, in that way. So looking back, we can see that the the what we suspected was, was correct because the Obama administration Right after they came into office, they brought worksite enforcement almost to a halt. I mean, you know, it's it's hard for anybody to uh, name a plant of some sort that has been raided by ICE since 2009, and that's because pretty much there haven't been any. Now, in terms of, uh, uh, I guess you did a an op-ed for CJR or somebody. I remember reading of months and months back, talking about your uh, is the wall is Trump's wall essentially your idea. No, the wall is not my idea. He, uh, you know, he began talking about a wall almost from the moment he started campaigning. Um, I mean, people have been talking about a wall for, and I have been in favor of a wall yeah. for for many, many years before Trump uh, started running for president. So I, I, you know, I don't know, you know, where he first read about it and got the idea. But, but no, he he didn't consult me before he started talking about a wall. Um, where I have offered some input on the wall proposition or policy is on this issue of, you know, is it possible to force Mexico to pay for it? And, and the answer is, yes, actually it is, uh, using a provision that many people don't know about in our Patriot Act. Uh, the Patriot Act has a provision uh, that allows the Treasury Department to pass regs, regulations that um, impose certain criteria on people engaging in financial transactions and opening accounts. And so if we wanted to, we could uh, amend. We're, we're talking about remittances. Uh, right. Yeah. People so wiring money to so, their relatives back so, in Mexico. Yeah. Long story short, without yeah. getting into the legal weeds, yeah. we could perfectly legally under the Patriot Act. It wouldn't be some executive order like Obama did just out of thin air. This would be a regulation under the Patriot Act. We could require uh, people who are sending remittances, you know, non-citizens who are sending remittances back to the home country to prove that they are in the United States legally before those remittances go home. That would turn off, uh, if, if we did that, that would turn off billions of dollars to the, to the country of Mexico because they, you know, on any given year, it's about $23 billion in remittances, some from legal, some from illegal uh, aliens in the country, in the United States. And so you, you turn off that spigot of money, which is the largest source of foreign capital in many years in, that Mexico receives, they'd have a pretty powerful incentive. Okay, say, you know, please don't do that. So you offer them the choice. Either you uh, cough up some money to help us pay for this wall, or we uh, pass this regulation. Now, now, President Obama has personally sort of said that this was this is impra an impractical solution and would would cost billions of dollars in terms of creating a new government bureaucracy in order to do this. Um, but, but before yeah, we, I, I don't know how he gets that. It does, it, it, you wouldn't have to create any bureaucracy; it'd be pretty simple to enforce. Um, Banks are very good at following the law. Um, wait a second. Let me let me follow up on that one. <laughs> No, you, you, you know, see, so look, you, if you, following laws like this, where you have a paper record. We just had the Wells Fargo thing. Right, yeah. but this is a law yeah. like, uh, in order to open an account or in order to open, to conduct this transaction, right. you, the bank, have to have these three things, X, Y, and Z, and you have to have a, a, a document. When, when banks are required to do things like that for each transaction, and there's an easy audit trail to see if the bank is complying, that's the kind of law banks comply with because it's so easy to get, for them to get caught if they're breaking the law. So when did you first meet, uh, I ask almost everybody this question who's met with him, when did you first meet Trump uh, and, and what was kind of the nature of the interaction? Did you guys talk about this? Did you talk about other stuff? Uh, we, we did talk about this exact subject and I met him uh, in New Hampshire uh, before the New Hampshire primary. Um, did uh, he, and, and just if you can, without telling too many tales out of school, what did that what was he interested in hearing and and was there anything that you thought he'd been saying that you want that you wanted to counsel him either to expand on or not say no uh nothing i was uh, interested in counseling him not to say um i just was offering my help to uh you know give him some details on immigration if that would be useful to him um you know i was encouraged that we had someone who was leading in the presidential race who whose flagship issue was immigration and, and stopping illegal immigration in particular uh, so, you know, I was really interested and encouraged in what the Trump campaign was doing. One of the things that struck me when I first met him and spoke to him for the first time is just how um, intellectually hungry he was. Like you give him information, he said, you know, he, he'll grab at that information and say, 
that's really interesting. I, and then he'll say to another staff member, uh, "I get that for me. I need that right now." Or something. You know, he he he's he, he you know his mind. It, it, it struck me that his mind is like a sponge. He was like, if you if you give him information, he wants to immediately process it and figure out how he can use that information. But but here's a question in terms of the larger optics, because we are in a ferocious political environment Absolutely. right now. I mean, yeah. it really is something else. Um, do you think he did your cause, and your cause is bigger than any one candidate? Is my sense. Right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you could put you. It strikes me that if it was if the man's name wasn't Trump and it was another candidate who had a similar point of view, you would support them as well, right? Right. Um, but if do you think that this man Trump did your cause a disservice by in his opening statement, sort of making the statement about rapists by by putting. Uh, by getting the dander of people up, by not explaining it in a more rational way. I mean, could this be sold a lot better? Um, there are many different ways to, to talk about the immigration issue, right? You can focus on so many different parts of it. And Trump is, you know, he, he, he is uh, kind of a case unto himself in terms of how he relates to the electorate. He, he's... He is this uh, showman who comes at from a reality TV, you know, perspective. Um, he's sort of a larger than life figure, and so when you put Trump on a stage and you ask him to, you know, engage in this issue, he might do it very differently than I, as an attorney, uh, might do it. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that he's set the cause back in any way, really. And in fact, I would say he set the in, the cause for the enforcement of our immigration laws forward, um, regardless of what happens in the presidential election, because he has shown just how uh, important it is to the American people and how it seems to be a factor that brings people to the polls. You know, after previous presidential elections, you would constantly hear talking heads say, well, you know, that immigration issue wasn't that important, or uh, maybe the immigra- talking about the illegal immigration problems uh, hurt Romney or something like that. You know, in fact, we can see that, it, that when a candidate takes a pro-law enforcement point of view, it, it helps him or her. Uh, in the, certainly in Republican primaries and in most general elections, it helps as well. So, you know, I think he's definitely shown to the political world in America that you can take a strong law enforcement view and you can win with it. And we've seen many cases of politicians who've taken a weak law enforcement view and have lost uh, with it. I mean, I, there, there are many uh, examples, but one, one that uh, comes to mind and illustrates it so vividly to me is Tom Osborne, former coach of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. He walked on water uh, in Nebraska. I mean, the guy was, you know, a, a political demigod. Not so much in Kansas. Not so much in Kansas. No, no, no. <laughs> Rival football team. But he, uh, you know, he was a member of Congress and he wanted to become governor. Right. And to long story short, um, he made a statement about a bill in the Kansas legislature to give in-state tuition to illegal aliens. And he said he would have signed that bill. His opponent, uh, Dave Heineman, who was far less well-known in Nebraska, said, no, I would have vetoed that bill. That single issue turned the election completely upside down. Uh, Tom Osborne, who was going to waltz into the governor's mansion with no difficulty, lost that election. And so anyway, you know, these are interesting case well, and studies. I also remember Hillary, I mean, this is more peripheral, but in November of 2007, it was a, an immigration and driver's license question that tripped up Hillary at the debate. That's at, exactly at the right. Debate. Yeah. Um, but, but since you brought up the electoral component of this, here's the issue. What, what did George W. Bush get in 2000 in terms of the Hispanic electorate? 41%, 38%. I don't re- recall. Uh, yeah, in that ballpark, yeah. We are, with with uh, Trump, we are now talking about in the range of 10, 11% to at best 17 or 18%. You saw the postmortem. I know I hate to rehash the postmortem because we're going to have another postmortem likely. You saw the, the postmortem. Uh, explain to me how this is a winning issue for the Republican Party if it alienates so many members of the largest growing ele- uh, component of the electorate. Well, it's, it's, an, interest, it's an issue that in many ways uh, turns a lot of, how do, how do I say it? It, 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 it changes some of the political assumptions in the country. For example, we normally assume that union working class voters will vote Democrat. There's a you know tradition going back you know a right. century in America of that being true. Uh, but this particular issue uh, is one where you find that blue collar union, maybe registered Democrats will actually vote for the pro enforcement candidate. And so I should just say the polls at the moment are not indicating that that is going to be the case. He's getting some independence, but 
He's also there's a lot of leakage with Latinos, and obviously he has tremendous problem with right. Them. So yeah. you got to so so you've really got to, and who knows they may not be independents. These these blue collar voters, they could these right. are the the Reagan Democrats, and so you know the way he wins, speaking you know as right. as a as a political uh, odds maker, is to you know he's got to get enough working class American maybe union, maybe non-union, blue-collar people to vote for him who would otherwise be voting for the Democrat reflexively. And I think that offsets uh, any decrease in the percentage of Hispanic voters who might vote for the Republican. But again, and, and not to belabor the point, I mean, what seems to be happening in this election, and, and it's faded a bit in the last couple of polling cycles just because you know he's had some real self-inflicted damage here, is that what it had been doing, at least in the primaries, was and he got the most votes of any Republican nominee, uh, Republican candidate in the history of the Republican yeah. uh, primary process, is it seems to be intensifying support to a white-hot level among a certain part of the electorate and then creating a counter-reaction. At some point, and I know I'm, I'm asking you this question, and you know you have made your career on being pretty straightforward in where you come from on this stuff. But do you think, as a long-term sustainable strategy for the Republican Party, is this a winner, or does some accommodation have to be made? I think it is a winner, and I think uh, if if the Republican Party accommodates in the sense of being okay with amnesty, or which would be the big accommodation that people, you know, and some Republicans like John McCain have made. Um, then I don't think it's a winner. And, and the reason I think it's a, a winner if, we, if Republicans hold the line is if you drill down uh, and, on polling questions and ask um, Hispanic Americans, do you think that that people and, you, and how you ask the amnesty question is, is critical? Do you think that individuals who came in illegally should be allowed to have legal presence and, and stay in the United States? The, there's a very significant percentage that say no. And the reason they say no is because their family did it legally and they may have, might have had to wait multiple years and pay thousands of dollars to attorneys. And so there's a sizable percentage of the Hispanic electorate that says, no, we should enforce the law. And many you, of them- You have multi-generational families in Texas and Florida. Exactly, yep. exactly. And, and there are some uh, who see some of the criminal consequences of illegal immigration because you do <clears> have a substantial uh, criminal population among the illegal alien population, not, not to say the least, you have the, the coyotes themselves and some of the drug smuggling networks. And so, But I should say in general, there's some dispute about that. I mean, okay, so yeah, the, yeah, well, that's a separate issue. Okay. Usually when people say, oh, the criminality among uh, alien population versus citizen population, they say there's not much difference or there's less criminality. But the problem is you you have to take out legal aliens. See, legal aliens have been screened and not allowed into the country if they have a criminal record. American citizens aren't screened and taken out of the citizenship pool right. because they have a criminal record. So um, if you look just at illegal aliens, not all aliens, then of course you're going to see a much higher percentage of criminality than either the legal aliens or the because US they're unscreened. Citizens. Because they're unscreened, and that because back, they might isn't that doesn't that become then a chicken and the egg thing? Where if you increase, <clears throat> you hate the word amnesty, but if you increase the number of screened legal Im immigrants, then you are screening out criminality, even if you're increasing the number of people who are coming in, right? Um, well, if you the that assumes that if you grant an amnesty that all of the criminals all come forward and say, oh, yeah, you got me. I committed a crime, too. So probably what would happen, as we've seen in past cases, is the um, either the criminal legal alien comes forward with a completely uh, made-up identity and the way these past amnesty proposals have been uh, proposed, that would be easy to do. And the federal government hands him a new identity card for his made-up identity, or the person just doesn't come forward and continues to remain in the United States illegally. So I don't see how an amnesty... Uh, logically can increase the gotcha. the non-criminal percentage of the alien population. Now, back to Trump for two seconds. Trump, now you, you were also had a very significant influence on Mitt Romney in 2012, the self, the quote unquote, do you, do you like the term self-deportation? That doesn't you seem... Know, I mean, it, it's, it's self-deportation is, is, is kind of a, um, a very shorthand term. I mean, the, the right. proper term is attrition through enforcement, right? That if, and this is, it, it's, so obviously correct. If you have any law enforcement problem, the way you solve that law enforcement problem is not by enforcing 100% against every lawbreaker. You ratchet up the level of enforcement somewhat, and people being rational decision makers will increase their compliance. So right. take an example of you know, an interstate. If you have um, some section of Interstate 35 that is being, that people are 
they've never seen they haven't seen a, a patrol car there in the last three years. Well, eventually everybody's going to know that they can speed there because they're not yeah. going to get caught. So the effective speed is going to be hundred miles an hour. That's right? why I sixty five in Alabama from Birmingham to Montgomery is a racetrack. There, there you go. <laughs> so let's just take that example. Now yeah. let's say that people have suddenly said, "Wait a minute, this is too fast. We got to do something about right. this law breaking on I sixty You wouldn't say, "Well, we've got only two solutions: either we arrest one hundred percent of the speeders, or we make it." an amnesty effectively and make it the autobahn of Alabama and say, we'll not enforce the speed limit. It, it, too late, dude. It is. <laughs> well, um, but, but the, the appropriate law enforcement response that anyone will rationally say is, well, you just, you don't arrest a hundred percent of the speeders. Right. You, you stop one or 2% and then everybody else changes their behavior because the probability of getting caught increases. Same thing with immigration. You don't have to say amnesty or arrest a hundred percent. You start removing 10, 20, 30, inc- ratcheting up the percentage of people that are getting caught and deported, and the behavior of the rest of the people will change. It's attrition through enforcement. Okay, but here's my fly on the wall question for you. When you talked with Trump, and you've talked with Trump numerous times, I presume, uh, did you ever bring up his comment that the self-deportation stuff with Romney, quote-unquote, lost votes? I mean, Trump I, asserted I that it not, lost votes. Yeah, I, I have not discussed that comment with him. Do you think it did lose votes? Do you agree with him I don't, on that? I don't think it did. You know, the... Um, the the uh, Tuesday morning analysis, or you know, that was done after the uh, Trump, uh, rather after Romney's loss in 2012, you know, they you just had people sort of asserting without any data that this particular uh, statement by Romney lost him votes. But I haven't seen any hard data that it you know that that was responsible or significantly responsible for. Well, I guess uh, the presumption votes. is he lo- he dec- we have seen a gradual, not a gradual, but a fairly precipitous decline since W on that yeah and, and the, the interesting thing is it's and been, you had the entire you but, had but it's been yeah. you know from one president to another there's been a steady decline in Rep- in the republican share uh of that subsection of the electorate support and you know i think it's more than just uh positions on issues there's a lot going on i mean i think the democrat party has done uh a very effective job of kind of making themselves the the part the the ethnic party of choice and, and encouraging that subsection of the American population to identify themselves ethnically and so you know there, there's a lot of outreach going on on the Democrat side that we have to factor into this too and do you so, think it's a good thing or a bad thing generically <laughs> generically I think it's a bad thing I don't think we should identify ourselves as white Americans Hispanic Americans African Americans I think we should all identify ourselves as Americans um, that's I, I think we should have a colorblind society. Um, I wish we did, but but the Democratic well, Party also, has 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 made it part of their appeal these days that they not are these the party. days. I mean, the, the, well, the Democratic Party was the party of the the. For instance, if you want to talk about an ethnic group, and I talked with Ann Coulter about this, it was kind of funny in the context of sitting there in the city, right? And I'm from New York, I should tell you, as if you needed to guess. Uh, <laughs> um, you want to look at you want to look at a, a fascinating case study in both sort of the corrosive and exalted history of immigration, illegal and otherwise, in New York. Look at the Irish in New York City, mm-hmm. because you, you could not, if you look at the literature of what Protestants wrote about the Irish in the 1840s and 1850s and 1860s prior to the draft riots, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the rhetoric, at least, tracks pretty closely with what's going on. And, and now. I think the Irish are doing okay in this country. Um, but, but that does raise an interesting question. Do you think that, um, obviously, uh, there, there are some issues, particularly on the border in Arizona, especially uh, with the, when we have seen a very strong influx of, of illegal immigration, and it's ebbed a bit over the last couple of years. Um, do you think maybe we're just overreacting that th- this is a group of people that will integrate themselves into the society in the way that the Irish, what, what are you, a Norwegian, German? Yeah, actually Norwegian right. and German and a few uh, others. I'm Jewish. <laughs> the, the way that those groups, is there anything endemic to this population coming south of the border that leads you to believe they will not integrate over the long term in the way that our folks did? Well, there's a really interesting book on this that was written by the late Sam Huntington, who was a professor at Harvard and was on President Carter's National Security Council. It was the last, I think it was the last book he wrote before he died. It's called Who Are We? And it's a book about American identity. And he says that there is a difference in the latest wave of immigration. There are two differences, well, actually three differences. One is that the there's a huge illegal component along with the legal component. So there's, you know, in addition to the you know, legal aliens that we are admitting, and of course the, the current wave of immigration is, is dominated uh, by countries uh, from Central and, and South America as well as Mexico, um, 
that there's a legal component and an illegal component. So that's one thing that's different. Uh, the other thing, though, is in comparison to past waves of immigration, um, there isn't the cutting of ties. Like, you know, if when my ancestors came over from Norway, they had to cut ties. There weren't phone lines so they could call home. Right. There wasn't the Internet. They, they could send email back and forth. Um, and so you, you had this. It made it it sort of forced the immigrant coming to America to become American and stop thinking of himself as a Norwegian American or whatever he was. Um, and that's a, a big change. And then the third change is that the engine of assimilation, which for decades in America was so important was our public schools. Um, now the public <clears throat> schools are more pushing a, a message of multiculturalism, you know, American tradition, American uh, uh, values are not necessarily superior to any other values in the world. And so if the public schools aren't assimilating, if there is less pressure to cut ties with the ho old home country, um, and we have this unremitting wave with legal and illegal components for the past, you know, really 40, 50 years, Huntington throws out the hypothesis that, you know, maybe this we, we don't know yet. The, the jury's still out, but maybe it's going to be harder for assimilation to occur. And, and, and so then you start looking at things at how, when is in English acquisition? You know, when did the, when does the family become English? How many generations and things like that. And there are all kinds of studies being done on this, but it's an interesting question. And, well, and we I don't know the I, answer. I grew up in a multi-ethnic, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, in a bunch of multi-ethnic neighborhoods, including Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, where, you know, you have signs in Russian and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it was my sense that people did integrate pretty quickly because there's a real economic incentive, particularly in a place like New York. But let yeah. me just ask you just to throw this word out because this is what people have accused you of. How is that not nativism? It's, it's not nativism at all to say uh, we want to encourage people to assimilate. Indeed, it's it's almost the opposite of nativism, right? Nativism is a uh, resistance to the foreigner and a belief that na a belief that natives are somehow superior. And, and that's certainly not true. So, you know, the view I'm saying is a pro assimilation view. I'm saying we should welcome foreigners coming to America and we should encourage them to become American as quickly as possible because that's what made America has made America great. You know, American greatness is not due to uh, some sort of ethnic superiority or genetic superiority or something like that. American greatness is due to our creed, you know, our, our constitution, our rule of law, the uh, the work ethic, uh, the sense of personal responsibility, uh, the, you know, our, our the establishment clause. Um, <clears throat> yeah, even the establishment clause. There's so many parts of our the, the, you know, it, it's a it's a fascinating question. Why has America become the most powerful nation on the globe? you know, far more powerful than Alexander the Great could ever imagine. And the if you look at the, the By the reasons, way, I'm doing a hell of a job tearing ourselves in half in this particular election. I think that's something you and I can both agree about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. really not good stuff at all. The, the, the political division in America is probably greater than ever since the Civil War. And, and so, but, but the point is, the American greatness is due to people coming here and then becoming American. A Frenchman doesn't see, doesn't speak of becoming French after you live there a while. Right. Uh, a person from Germany doesn't think, speak of becoming German. But in America, we have this ethos that you you come here, you adopt the American creed, and it, which is a set of beliefs about how we Americans see the world, and then you become American. And so what I'm saying is, let's keep up that assimilation. So let's let's invite and and and. Put, wrap our arms around the, the incoming immigrant and say, please join us and become like us. And we're not doing that anymore. Well, it's a really interesting debate because we saw it flare in the early part of the 20th century when Henry Ford, you know, Henry Ford was an active participant. And then there was Moynihan's book in the 60s. Um, but uh, a couple more couple more questions, more more Trump specific. So you, we, I just threw out establishment clause. Um, uh, did you support, do you support Trump's Muslim, I don't even know where it sits right now. He's moved it around quite a bit. Do you support the notion of a temporary ban on people from a faith uh, based on potential terrorist threat? Uh, I support the idea of um, restrictions, including in some instances, you might put full bars in place of people coming from certain regions where, uh, you know, Islamic jihad based terrorism is coming from. And so we've actually had this in place right after 9-11 for a period of time. We had um, enhanced scrutiny of people coming from Al-Qaeda-associated countries. And so I think you have to recognize that, okay, who are these people that, that are part of ISIS? Well, it is the Islamic State. Right. Uh, who are these people who are part of Al-Qaeda? Well, they're you know people who subscribe to this radical form of Islam. Uh, so you ha if you want to use your immigration system effectively, you've got to 
recognize that, okay, a person coming from Syria has a higher probability of being a terrorist than, I don't know, pick some other random country somewhere else in the world that, that has no But, but his articulation, now, now, but his articulation was based on religion. Do you have an objection to, it's, he's, it's been called, at least in, in, and he's called it, the Muslim ban. Do you, are you against the notion of a Muslim ban as opposed to a regional I, ban? I think it, it, a, a flat Muslim ban is probably not what he would say he supports right now, but I, I think it has to be enhanced scrutiny from people coming from terrorist regions. Will those regions be a higher percentage of Muslims? Yes, because the source of terrorism is radical Islam. It's a, you know, a, a subsect of the people who consider themselves Muslim. So, you know, I, there is a relationship to Islam because the terrorism is based on a, a particular view of Islam. But no, it is not a, a Muslim ban, as I see it. How about the internal surveillance question, which is something that's kind of faded uh, that he mentioned early on about, again, he sort of says things in a really kind of blunderbuss kind of way. And you got to go back and kind of figure out what the yeah. policy attached to it would be. But uh, I think he was talking about shutting some mosques down. Obviously, you were in the heart of this stuff when you're at the Ashcroft Justice yeah. Department, yeah. right? To what extent do you think internal surveillance of this stuff is important? And do you do you want to hear Trump talking more about that? Uh, I do think it's important. And, uh, you know, whether he talks more about it, I suppose there's not much left to, to the political campaign. We've only got a few weeks remaining. Um, I, I assume he should. I, I think he should probably talk about it. I, um, so, you know, this is something that you again, you'd, I don't think you do it in blanket fashion, just like with the, the question of the Muslim ban. I don't think the appropriate way is to just speak in blanket terms. And I think his. Uh, Mr. Trump's way of talking is he'll throw out a proposition, a, a premise, and then he'll subsequently refine that proposition uh, to something more specific. So, yeah, I mean, you, when you have multiple terrorists coming from a particular neighborhood and a particular uh, and they were they were radicalized in a particular community, um, it would be nonsensical for the United States to just ignore that fact and say, well, you know, we're not going to uh, have any surveillance. We're not going to expo- uh, direct our investigation to that uh, community any more than any other community. I mean, you, law enforcement does involve making some rational judgments about where the threat is. Right. So, you know, I think it would be wrong to tie the FBI's hands and say, um, no, you cannot surveil any mosques where it just so happens there have been dozens of terrorists coming out of that mosque Which, should there be a more robust do you think there needs to do you think like if you were uh, again let's talk maybe post i'm not saying i don't want to to uh, i by no means want you as a trump supporter to accept the premise that he won't get elected but i do want to just look beyond him to some extent and ask you regardless of who the president is would you like to see a significantly more robust domestic surveillance program on this sort of thing um you know, it, it really depends. But I guess the uh, there's no question that we have seen in during the Obama administration, we have seen, you know, an increase in uh, post 9-11 terrorist attacks by Islamic jihadists in the United States. You know, it's it's a, a noteworthy thing that, you know, after 9-11 until the end of the Bush administration, there were no attacks of any significance by uh jihadists in the United States. Then Obama comes into office and I'm not saying that the, the, um, th- that he caused this in any sense, but, but something, something changed because then all of a sudden we started seeing Fort Hood. Then we saw the Boston Marathon bombings and then we've got uh, Orlando. And then you just go down the list of all these attacks that have occurred in the United States. So clearly something is going wrong in uh, our law enforcement community's ability to track the uh, the terrorists who are in the United States right now and, and attempting to, you know, cause some kind of a terrorist attack. So it might involve surveillance. It might involve doing something else differently. But whatever is happening, we are not doing as an effective job since Obama took office in stopping domestic terrorist attacks by jihadists. Uh, so in general, if you were to kind of counsel, whisper in Donald Trump's ear before he goes out onto the stage. And we had the WikiLeaks revelations that Hillary in one of her speeches talked about open borders, kind of this yeah, larger view yeah. of open borders. What would you, if there are one or two bullet points that you would want him to really hammer home, what would those be? Uh, one you just mentioned, you know, usually we use the phrase open borders as kind of a shorthand reference. Right. We don't literally expect the person to have said the words open borders, but Hillary literally said the words open borders uh, in that speech that was, uh, or that transcript, I guess, that was leaked through WikiLeaks. Um, I think he should make very clear that this is, she has said what her view is and her view is open borders. Um, 
I would also advise him to hit the Benghazi issue. Uh, you know, that was I think most Americans would would find it just astounding that, you know, if they thought about it, that, that Hillary Clinton would go to the uh, family uh, families of the people who were killed in Benghazi and say, you know, we're going to see if we can figure out what happened with this, uh, this video. We're going to really try to find the perpetrator of the video. And, you know, when she knew at that time that it was a terrorist attack and it had, had little or nothing to do with that video. And so, you know, I think those are some attacks that, that Trump needs to make. He needs to hold her accountable for what she said about open borders and for Benghazi. Has he done enough of that? I mean, like the last one kind of devolved into, what do you think of the last yeah, debate? I, I, I think in the debates, he hasn't done enough of that. I yeah. mean, he's, he's, you know, in the first debate, I think a uh, fair criticism was he, he got on the defensive and, um, she, he allowed her to keep him on the defensive. In the second debate, he corrected that and, and was able to land some punches, but I, I would advise him to land these punches in particular. Now you're, you're a debater. You've been doing this, and I, I don't want to eat too much of your time. I do want to get on to voting rights very quickly, but just on, on as a debater, as somebody who kind of started off doing that, um, I got to tell you, my response to the second debate was very, it was a very depressing experience for me. What did you think as somebody who, who tends to argue uh, the issues... Uh, seeing uh, it devolve into this sort of personal stuff. Do you think that was a good move by him to bring the women in? What do you, I mean, what, what, as a supporter who wants to exalt these issues and sort of focus on the issues, what do you think of that as an approach? The personal well, stuff? I, so I'm, I'm never a fan of making a personal attack on your opponent in a debate. That's just, you know, that's not the way I debate. Um, I do, however, think that uh, having the press conference ahead of time with the, uh, the the women who'd been involved with President Clinton, Bill Clinton, I think that was an effective way to blunt what he knew was going to be uh, one of Hillary's first attacks, if not from the moderators, and indeed it did come from the moderators. Uh, and so he had to put that in context and say, you know, what I said uh, 11 years ago were words, these were actions. Uh, so I think that was... That was effective, but uh, no. In terms of um, you know personal insults, I mean that's just a different style of debating, and it's not what I would do. Uh, you know, I think he's got plenty of ammo on the issues alone to uh, to to use against uh, Hillary in the debate. So I, you know, I'd focus more on these. Well, issues. I'm sure you've been asked this before. So, so uh, but in terms of the, and I don't want to get into the details of what this guy has done in his personal life, but. Has there been anything that he has done or said in the past couple of weeks that have made you in any way, you're, you're, a, you're a dad, you're somebody, you're a religious person, is there anything that he has done in the last couple of weeks to make you feel a little less confident in his candidacy? Well, the one thing is, you know, I don't, uh, if, if someone makes an allegation against somebody, I don't assume it to be true, right? That everybody deserves the benefit of the doubt especially if they deny the allegation. Uh, so when the allegations uh, against Trump came from the various women, you know, I, I am withholding judgment on that. And, and I think we owe it to everybody to, you know, assume that they're innocent until proven guilty. Um, so that what about the f comments about the, their physical? Uh, yeah, you know, the, I, you know, that's that bothers me, obviously. And, and that's, you know, I'm the father of five daughters and uh, five daughters, five daughters. Yeah. <laughs> and so <Are> you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm in a uh, very By small way, minority just, in our house. Your esteem has just risen my eyes <laughs> exponentially. So, yeah, obviously yeah. comments like that bother me. I mean, he's apologized for a lot of those comments, too. You know, it, you know, he he uh, made those comments in the past. And, you know, he was also you know, making those comments in the kind of Hollywood slash New York uh, media environment. And that environment is not one that I swim in very often. Well, it is one, that, it's <laughs> one that I have swum in all my life. Um, final couple of questions on uh, kind of voting rights. So when you look at the stats, you have been um, a proponent of voter ID uh, laws, right? Yes. Uh, and, and proof of citizenship. Proof of also. citizenship. Um, and a couple of your, uh, a couple of the things that you did were struck down. Uh, in state court, right? Well, so right now we're in the middle of litigation. Uh, the only things that have happened so far have been uh, preliminary injunctions. Tell uh, folks what, what, what it was that you intended to do. And okay, so what Kansas did when I became Secretary of State is we became the first state to combine all three of these things, photo ID at the polls, equivalent security for mail-in ballots, and proof of citizenship when you register. Um, our photo ID and mail-in security has not been attacked in court. Um, the 
proof of citizenship has. And right now we're simultaneously litigating four lawsuits against the ACLU, um, two in federal court, two in state court. And actually, the Obama administration's on the other side of one of the federal court cases. Um, there were preliminary injunctions in the two federal court cases and a preliminary injunction in one of the state court cases. Um, but at this point, we haven't gotten to summary judgment in those three cases yet, which is the sort of the next the next phase where which finalizes the lowest court opinion. So we've got a long way to go in those cases. Uh, I, I'm I'm confident that at the end of the day we're going to win. I mean. The argument that the ACLU is making is a pretty silly one. They're claiming that Congress back in 1993 when they passed the National Voter Registration Act, that Congress intended to ban states from asking for proof of citizenship if you register at the DMV. But if you register in person uh, then or by mail, they ca- a state can ask you for pr- proof of citizenship, but the DMV is a magical path that you never have to prove you're a citizen. There was no, no member of Congress ever said that. Here's that's my question. their argument. Here's my question. You've argued this a zillion times on, on so this is probably a boring, uh, a boring back and forth uh, for you, but I got to hit you with it. Um, do you believe that there is, uh, well, let me just sort of throw the stats as I know them. I remember a study by the Brennan Center that said effectively that the chances of, of real voter fraud in this country in terms of an assessment are less than getting hit by lightning. I think... There was a study uh, conducted between the early 90s, I'm getting the numbers wrong, in 2013 that showed less than 100, maybe 35, 40 cases of voter fraud nationally. Are you creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist? I totally reject that suggestion. First of all, the Brennan Center um, has, they often ask very loaded, biased questions in their surveys, and their publications on the subject are just fraught with many, many errors. Um, but yeah, to, to, the, to your question, do we have evidence of voter fraud? Yeah, just in Kansas alone, we have extraordinary amounts of it. So uh, when, when you our, say extraordinary, can you give yeah, me a finer statistical? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I presented evidence to the Kansas legislature of more than 230 cases of voter fraud of various categories that were when I was presenting legislation to the legislature to consider. Over um, what period of time? Uh, that was over a 13-year period of time. So and that's so. let's just sort of break that down. So that's well, about, that, ten, that's about well, 12 be, or 14 uh, well, per you two, year. Well, you yeah, election cycle every two years. So, and how yeah. many voters typically vote in a, in a statewide election? Uh, it, it depends. We've got 1.7 million on the voter rolls. In a presidential election, you're, you're talking about a million, a little less than a million in non-presidential, you know, 400. 500,000. So my question is, if you're but, talking but, about... Well, but the, see, then that's the... I think that's the wrong question to ask. Anytime you look at voter fraud as a percentage of the total electorate, it's always going to look tiny. But right. the question is, is there enough voter fraud to swing a very close election? And the answer is almost always yes. In Kansas, in any given year for the state uh, state legislature, we typically have you know three to six um, elections where the result is you know, fewer than 40 votes difference between the winner and the loser. We had an exact tie again this year. We had an exact tie a few years ago. Have any well. investigations in those tight ones shown instances of voter fraud? Um, any of those 200? Or well, whatever? you know, in the, uh, of the, of the really tight ones in the last few years in Kansas, we haven't had an investigation, which we're, so we're doing voter fraud investigations right. separately from looking at close elections. Right. right? So we do discover voter fraud, and then after the fact, we can look back and say, well, which elections did that And there was one issue, in? if I'm not mistaken, it involved people crossing over the border from Oklahoma. Yes, that was in, um, right. that was in uh, Seward County, Kansas, and that was a, a, a ballot issue where uh, the, it appeared that the um, hog processing plant in Oklahoma was sending its employees to vote in the Kansas election. And uh, they, it's alleged by the testimony of the county clerk that you know approximately 50 people um, who were not U.S. citizens uh, voted in that Kansas County referendum. It did not swing the result. But we do know of a case just on the Missouri side uh, in North Kansas City in 2010 where it has since been proven that uh, the election was stolen. It was won by one, a margin of one vote, Rizzo versus Royster, uh, in a Democrat primary where the Democrat was going to win the general election. And uh, that... Rizzo won by one vote. There were, according to the testimony of poll workers, approximately 50 Somali nationals who were coached and, and uh, you know, brought in by so-called translators to uh, who coached them how to vote and vote for Rizzo. Um, well, and the two, look, historically, the two most infamous examples one can think of is what LBJ did in South Texas uh, in, I guess, his, his second Senate run. 
and then uh, 1960 in Chicago with yeah, Daily Digit. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and, but let me mention some other yeah, reasons. Yeah. So not only the, the 230 plus cases, uh, in addition to that, it, with our proof of citizenship litigation, we've done some digging into the statistics in Sedgwick County, Kansas, which is where Wichita is. We've discovered just in the last three years approximately 25 aliens who successfully got on our voter rolls before our proof of citizenship requirement was in place or who attempted to get on the voter rolls but were stopped because they were shown to be non-citizens after our law was in place. So, you, you know, you extrapolate. That's just one county, 25 people in three years. You're talking probably well over 1,000 statewide over a longer period of time. Okay, so, but let's telescope this out, and this really will be the last question. I'm notorious for this. Uh, the uh, I'm, I'm, like, illegally on the rolls here. The um, um, But if you're looking at the rhetoric, let me give you an example. I gave a, a speech not too long ago where I took a Q&A. And there was a gentleman in the audience uh, from Louisiana who said to me, tens of thousands of illegal immigrants are being registered on the border right now, and it's going to swing the entire election, the entire election. You have a presidential candidate in Donald Trump now who is talking about the system being rigged. Now, as you and I both know, and you are a state official in the state of Kansas, local officials control local boards of election. Two questions. Do you think there is the possibility in 2016 of massive election-changing voter fraud? That's the first question. And second, do you agree with Trump that this is a rigged election? Um, on the first question, yes. I do think the presidential result could be swayed by voter fraud. Now, remember, we don't have one single election system. We have 50 different election systems. Um, Kansas is one of only four states that requires proof of citizenship. The others are Arizona, Alabama, and Georgia. So will, are there some close states where we probably have multiple thousands of aliens on the voter rolls? Yes. Uh, Florida clearly is a state. And indeed, they started looking at this issue a few years ago, and they found thousands of aliens on the voter rolls, and they started removing them. And then, of course, it resulted in litigation. Um, so Florida is one where if it's close, the votes of aliens could could turn the election. And, and as you know, Florida is... is going to be a decisive state again right. it appears uh, another one is colorado uh where you have a large percentage of aliens they don't have the protections in place in colorado that we do in kansas and the other three states that one could be swung by uh, aliens on the voter rolls uh another one possibly is nevada another one is possibly virginia virginia has a very high percentage of non-citizens in north virginia so Yes, it is possible that uh, in in certain battleground states, the presence of non-citizens who vote, and we have documented this for federal court, and it's part of the evidence in these federal cases, many cases of non-citizens voting, and we know the specific individual and the specific elections in which he voted, that could have happened in large numbers in those states, and it could swing the election. So is it rigged? No, you know, no, I don't think that in the sense that we normally use the term rigged that, um, you know, that, that the officials in those states are trying to make that happen. No. Is it a situation where some interests are happy to look the other way when non-citizens are voting? Yes. And so, you know, it depends on how you define rigged. Is it your sense that the Clinton campaign or the Democratic, the larger national Democratic superstructure is in any way engineering this or complicit in it? Um I think that they are, um, let's say, let's put it this way. They are, uh, they are opposed to Kansas and the other three states' proof of citizenship laws. Uh, the, they are very critical of them. The, the irony is that when our law was passed by the legislature, uh, more than two-thirds of the Democrats voted in favor of it. Um, but now the Democrat Party has decided we are going to attack proof of citizenship laws. The ACL well, the counter, can I just say, the count, just for so folks can hear it, the counter argument to that is any bar, not bar, any increased requirement tends, they believe, or they have... Uh, provided through their affidavits that that reduces participation and isn't in a sense combined with some of the uh, some other impediments an impediment for people to vote well, that is and, their counter argument that, 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 that is, is their, a vote that is their, their that is their claim right. but the interesting thing is in fact i was just involved in a deposition of one of our experts in one of those cases if you look at the the data um so our proof of citizenship law went into effect in 2013 if you look at the non-presidential election before then and the non-presidential federal election after 2010 and 2014, uh, the voter participation rate in Kansas increased <laughs> from 2010 to 2014 by about 1%, but nationally it decreased by about 4%. So 
our proof of citizenship requirement did not result in a, a lower percentage of Kansans voting in the election. Uh, on the contrary, it coincided with an increase while the rest of the nation was going down. So they haven't been able to provide evidence to prove or even suggest that it has discouraged voter participation. So last question, uh, do you think, um, do you think, how do you think the tenor of the immigration debate, I can't think of a more divisive debate in this country right now, can you, apart from immigration? In, in terms of that particular guns, policy? Immigra- guns, immigration. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really um, white hot issues, so to speak, where, you know, uh, the, the emotions are running high. I mean, yeah, certainly immigration is one. Do you think emotions are running too high? I mean, do you, I mean, do you think we are in need of a, of a national, <laughs> of a national cold shower? I mean, <laughs> people, I mean, the, yeah, the tenor of this I stuff mean, is just nuts. You know, I prefer a, a, a calm discussion of the issues where there's no ad hominem remarks, where nobody's calling the other person names, where, um, you know, it's it's a very rational fact based dis- discussion. Because, but that's me. I'm coming. You know, I'm a, a former college debater and and lawyer. And you know, that's but that's the- Amer- I got to tell you something. Judging coming in here through the magnetometers, one of the guards was talking to me about how awful the election was. I mean, I think a lot of people have this pretty yeah, nauseous yeah. feeling right I, now. I, right? I think the election has gotten really, really. Uh, ugly in some respects, but I think that the responsibility goes both ways in that regard. I mean, you've got, you know, the Clinton campaign, um, trying to make very personal attacks on Donald Trump. You've got Donald Trump's, uh, you know, general style of debating, which, which tends to be more personal. And so it it goes both ways, but yeah, you know, it's, it's not the way I would do it, but I'm not on the ticket. Well, I'm glad you and I are both so civil. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Maybe we'll turn it off and just go at it. Uh, Hey, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know I probably took more. That's uh, all right. It's a pleasure. uh, And really fun to come to Topeka, by the way. Yeah, great. Glad you could make the trip. 